With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom to do your deal. Whether you enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, or simply soak up the sun and sand in a tropical paradise, Cheap Caribbean Vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to Jamaica and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com. At the time that I was growing up in the, in the 80s, Paul was really, you know, trivialized and, and much laughed at. He was, he was mocked. Um, it was, you know, he was seen as, as the top lightweight in the Beatles or, or, or the guy who ruined the Beatles. And, and it, it's funny that for me, Paul has always been, you know, the most, the most troublesome and dangerous Beatle and, and the one that at any given moment I'm, you know, the most obsessed with. 93X presents the Celebration Rock Podcast with Stephen Hyden. This is the Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. Great show today. Uh, my guest is Rob Sheffield, the great music critic. He just has a new book out now, came out last week. It's called Dreaming the Beatles. And it's another book about the Beatles. You're probably thinking, how many books are there already about the Beatles? How many documentaries? How many tribute albums? What else is there to know about the Beatles? Well, I've read a lot of Beatles books, and there were things that I learned from this book. And some of the cool trivia <laughs> comes up in my conversation with Rob. But there's a lot of things that I didn't go into intentionally because I, I don't want to give it away. You know, I want you guys to get this book because if you're a Beatles fan, there's going to be things that you learn. And you're also going to, I think, appreciate Rob's perspective. Now, Rob, if you're not familiar, you know, he's, I think, one of the most respected music critics working today. He's been uh, a fixture of music magazines since the 90s. He, he's been at Rolling Stone for a long time. But before that, uh, he worked for Spin. Um, and I think maybe his most celebrated work in the 90s was when he wrote for the Spin Alternative Music Record Guide. Um, I would say that for like music critics of my generation, that is like one of the touchstone books. You know, that's a book that a lot of us read and studied and, you know, just went over and over again. And uh, I actually had Rob on my podcast um, last year and we talked about that book. Like I wanted to delve into that book just because it was so important to me. And this is a book, it has an orange cover. It has like sort of multicolored blocky letters on the, on the cover. And, you know, Rob's entries in that book were the ones that I would seek out before anyone else's, you know, uh, not only because they were so well written and, and informed, but, you know, they were really funny. You know, they were, it was a great way of, of combining, you know, sort of jokes and insight and a lot of heart. You know, you could tell that this guy was a good listener and that he brought a lot of himself into his writing and that he wasn't the kind of critic where, you know, they're holding themselves at a remove or they're trying to sort of, you know, affect this posture of being too cool for the room you know, or being too smart for the room. You know, a lot of writers adopt that posture, I think, under the mistaken impression that that will make them more attractive as writers, that people want to listen to them more, when in fact it usually turns people off. What people really want is someone who can write with heart and can connect with them and 
create an inviting place to you know sort of spend your time. Like when you read a book by somebody, you are hanging out with them, you are having a conversation. And the reason why people read music writing, I think, is because they love records so much that they want to re-experience those records through someone else's perspective. Um, otherwise, you know, they could just listen to the records. They don't really need to read music writing. But sometimes it's really fun to sort of climb inside the head of a person who is really smart, really funny, and, uh, and really warm and welcoming and, and, and basically the kind of person that you'd want to take a road trip with, someone you'd want to spend several hours in a car with. And while I've never taken a road trip with Rob, I have read a lot of his books, and he's definitely that kind of person. And he's precisely the kind of person that you'd want to hang out with and you'd want to hear from if you were going to go back and listen to Beatles records and you were going to go back and sort of go over this story that a lot of music fans know, you know, the arc of the Beatles' career. Um, yeah, because, you know, I mean, the Beatles, I mean, it, it, they do have the greatest mythology of any band, you know? There is no band that um, just has so many different stories in their lore, you know, stories that are bigger than some bands' entire careers, you know? That, that might just be one part of the Beatles' career. Um, so there's definitely a lot of fodder. Uh, in this story and, and, and Rob does a great job of, of hitting a lot of the big things and also finding his own little sort of nooks and crannies that he can kind of burrow in and make his own. So I had a lot of fun talking to Rob about this book. I had a lot of fun reading this book. Again, the book is called Dreaming the Beatles. It's out now. I recommend reading it. But before you read the book, maybe check out this podcast. I think if you're not sure if you want to read it, I think by the end of this conversation, you're going to want to read what Rob has to say. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Rob Sheffield. Thanks for uh, coming on. It is a joy, a joy to talk to you about anything, but a, a, a joy to talk Beatles with you. So I finished the book last night and I really loved it. I thought you did a great job. I'm going to ask you a question that I'm sure everyone is asking you at this point. I mean, there are if not dozens, hundreds of books on the Beatles. There was a 10-hour documentary about the Beatles. <laughs> it seems like there's been so much discussion of them. I, you know, the best compliment I can pay you with this book is that you came at them in a fresh way, you know, because I've, I've read a lot of Beatles books. I, I own Beatles Anthology. I, you know, I've seen that documentary many, many times. And you managed to write not just a Beatles book, but you wrote a Rob Sheffield book. Like it was very much had your signature point of view on it. Um, Thank you. So that's a great compliment to you. Going into the book, though, I imagine that that it must have been intimidating, on some level, you know, to you know, knowing all the discussion that's already out there, to come into it with. I mean, what was your approach, I guess, going into the book? Well, I, I wanted to write a book about the Beatles that wasn't about the '60s. You know what I mean? Right. I wanted to write about the Beatles not as this miracle that happened for eight years in the 60s, and you know, and the rest of us have all been kind of worshipping it from afar since then, because the Beatles were something that happened in the 60s, the Beatles were also something that happened in the 70s, and also something that happened in the 80s, and something that's happening right now. So I wanted to write about the Beatles as something now, so, and, and what the Beatles mean to our moment, and what they've meant to other moments uh, along the way, in different 
I mean, different cultures and different audiences and different generations. Um, and it's funny because I, you, God knows there must be triple digits Beatles books, and and I've read, like you probably, I read as many as I can get my hands on, and I always love them, even when they're terrible, <laughs> even even when I just plain don't believe a word of them. Um, that, that there's there's quite a few Beatles books that are like, yeah, I I I was. I was Paul Schiffer for a year and a half. Let me tell you the story. <laughs> I was there the day Julian Lennon brought home the drawing of Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. That's an anecdote I always look for in, in Beatles books because so many people claim that they were there in John's living room when Julian came <laughs> home from school with that drawing. And it's a little dubious in most cases. Um, but I... I love Beatles books. I eat them up. Uh, this one was one, I, honestly, that I'd wanted to read that I hadn't read yet, which is just you know something of Beatles that wasn't confined to the 60s, wasn't even centered in the 60s. But the Beatles is something that bizarrely keeps happening. Yeah, and, and, and that really is, I think, a unique thing to your book. Like, you make a distinction between how the Beatles were perceived in the 70s, in the 80s, in the 90s, and then, of course, now. I mean, you have this chapter late in the book where you talk about the 80s Beatles versus the 90s Beatles, and how in the 80s there was still that sort of, you know, patina of 60s nostalgia that clung to the Beatles, this sense that, like, whenever people talked about the Beatles, it was always about making the new generation feel bad that they weren't alive at the time <laughs> when the Beatles were together. <laughs> how in Absolutely. the 90s they were able, the Beatles were kind of finally able to shed all of that and they became something else. You know, of course, there were there was the Britpop thing happening, and the Beatles were a big touchstone there. Uh, but, of course, you know, Kurt Cobain was a Beatles acolyte. You know, the Beatles just sort of appeared in all these different contexts. I mean, can you talk about that? I feel like people haven't really talked, because I feel like, again, you know, they are still often talked about as a 60s thing, but they really are sort of perceived in a different way in each decade and for each generation. Yeah, absolutely. Um and, and the Beatles, you know, something that cracks me up about the Beatles is that, you know, everybody's got, you know, the big public universal Beatles. There's a hundred songs or so that everybody knows. And, but then there's the private Beatles and people get so amazingly uh, emotional and loyal and, 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 you know, really passionate about, you know, the song that they love that nobody appreciates the way they do. So a, a typical conversation I would have when I was writing this book is I would, you know, people would say, oh, you're writing another book about the Beatles? What's left to say it? I'd say, well, I have a chapter in this one about, you know, rock and roll music, which is a record that was such a touchstone for 70s kids that has been completely written out of the Beatles story for, quite frankly, excellent reasons. Uh, this incredibly cheesy 1976 anthology of Beatles hits. And uh, or I'll mention a song like Babies in Black or it's all too much songs that I love that, that are not, you know, airplay hits and not like a, a big part of the Beatles conversation. And it's funny to see how people jump into their own, you know, their own personal Beatles. Everybody's, everybody's got their personal Beatles uh, along with the universal Beatles. Like, like what is your personal Beatles? My, my personal Beatles? Yeah. Like, is there anything that you feel like, I mean, you write about this in your book, of course, but like, is there anything in Beatles lore that you feel like is maybe skimmed over a lot uh, or underappreciated that you kind of hold dear? Uh, for me, the, um, well, it's, it's 
always changing for me, but I was someone who, uh, you know, who, who really, the, the early rock and roll records to me are so emotionally complex and, and, and so just musically passionate and undeniable. So for a lot of, for instance, my, my twenties and thirties, I really underrated the last few years. Um, so I thought of, of Sgt. Pepper and Abbey Road were albums that I took for granted, if you know what I mean. I was like, yeah, they're good and, and they're, you know, they're clever and they're colorful and, and, and playful and, and I like them, but I, you know, I, I went a long time without listening to them. It's, it's possible that like I, I just did not put on Abbey Road ever in my 20s, which is really weird to me now. But it, in the last few years, I've completely flipped for that record and it, it's funny now that, the, you know, that the, the Beatles story is always changing for me. You know, that's a fascinating thing to hear because I was always a later Beatles person. It was always about the White Album and Abbey Road. And, you know, really, I guess starting with Revolver maybe being the fulcrum point, you know, between like the later and the early Beatles. I mean, Sgt. Pepper is the obvious one, but, you know, Revolver, I think, especially when those albums were reissued uh, at the end of the 80s on CD and you could get like the British versions of the albums. I mean, that's when I started listening to the Beatles. Like I, the first two Beatles albums I ever heard were Sgt. Pepper and A Hard Day's Night because those were the albums my dad had on CD. So like <laughs> it was like around 89, 90. And um, it's funny because I was a later Beatles guy, but I thought A Hard Day's Night was like at least twice as good as Sgt. Pepper. Like I thought A Hard Day's Night was, was such a great record. Um, but then... In the 90s, it, it was more of like a later Beatles thing, I think because that Beatles felt a little bit more connected to the rock music of that time. Like, I mean, the, like the White Album to me sounds like, you know, an early version of indie rock in a lot of ways. Like, there's a lot of things that they do on that record that were reminiscent to me of like what Guided by Voices was doing and, and Paper. Yeah. I also feel like, I mean, my theory on that first McCartney record too, is that that is sort of a, a proto indie rock record because he just kind of went into his home studio and recorded things off the cuff, you know, just like Stephen Malkmus did 20 years later, you know, just, yeah. you know, not very well thought out. Um, but yeah, it, you know, and Abbey Road was like the dorm room poster, you know, that people <laughs> have, you know, like that was the big one. Um, I mean, cause you know, from reading your book, I mean, it sounds like you are still, sort of like a rubber soul revolver person. I mean, that's like the sweet spot for you. Rubber soul is my favorite. Yeah. And that's, that's the one that it's, it's weird. That's the one that I still play the most. It's, it's, it's the one that's consistently been my favorite since I was a little kid. I mean, others are huge for me. Like the white album has always been huge for me and revolver and, uh, you know, and albums that don't officially exist anymore, like yesterday and today, which is one of the, you know, butchered American LPs that, that I grew up with as a kid in, in the 70s and 80s. Uh, Yesterday and Today is a song that they, it, it, it's an album that they just put together by taking bits off Help and bits off Revolver and bits off Rubber Soul. And this happens to be just kind of a perfect Beatles album. Um, so for me, like, those were the ones that uh, that, that really, like, made me a Beatles fan and really kind of like rewired my ears in terms of hearing the Beatles, but also other music. So Rubber Soul to me, that's, you know, it's, it's one of the saddest, sad songs and the funniest, funniest songs and the best kind of just stalling for time while figuring this stuff out songs, which is 
you know, a surprising amount of that album. And I guess I wasn't aware of like how quickly they made that record. For some reason, I felt like that was the beginning of them taking a long time to make albums, but that really wasn't until Sgt. Pepper. I mean, like from reading your book, I mean, I mean, they basically just recorded that on the fly in the similar way that they did the early records, right? Um, in, in, you know, and in, in they wrote half the songs on it in, in the week before the deadline. <laughs> and it just happens that the songs they, they were writing were songs like You Won't See Me and, and Girl, songs that were you know, completely mind-blowingly great. But you do make this interesting argument in your book, though, or this distinction between Rubber Soul, which you say is your favorite record, but you then say that you think Revolver is the best record. Well, Rubber Soul, it's it's funny what a confident and arrogant record it is. You know, Rubber Soul, they're like, yeah, we're going to try all this stuff really, really, really fast. If it works, great. We hope it, it doesn't do much damage to our brand. And Revolver... You can plainly hear they're like, nope, this is going to be genius. This, everything we try is going to be brilliant. And there's a real surge in the confidence level. And uh, it's, it's funny how emotionally different those albums are. I love them both so much. I've spent you know, so much of my life agonizing and arguing over which one is better. And it's, it's funny that just Rubber Soul is just one that has just almost like a direct emotional line to my heart that's almost like... If, if you reduced my DNA to, to vinyl form, you would get rubber soul. And even then, I don't even know whether I like the American version or the, or the English version better. Right. These arguments just never end. Because, well, you know, I have a lot of the American versions on vinyl, but I don't, I don't think I've ever heard, like, the American rubber soul. Like, what is the difference? Well, it begins fantastically with, uh, I've just seen a face. Yes. And, and that goes right into uh, Norwegian wood. So it's it's more unified in in the sense of like having like more of an acoustic folk rock feel. Right. But, uh, I've just seen the face as an album beginner is so iconic, and it's really funny that it was at least in the time that you know I was in high school and college that was like a famous album opening. You know, like that sort of like acoustic guitar feel at the beginning of I've just seen a face. You know. As almost like a serotonin rush in a pod lobby in the way of, oh my God, you are about to listen to Rubber Soul for the next half hour. <laughs> this is going to be excellent. And it's funny that to, you know, to think how Rubber Soul is like still such a great album, even without that, it's the first song. And it, it's funny, but I've just seen a face because I feel like I would talk to like my dad or like people like around my dad's age and they all knew that song. And a lot of them could even like play it on guitar. It'd be like among their favorite Beatles songs. But for people my age who started getting into the Beatles through the CDs, that song, I think, got lost a little bit because it's on Help, which is not necessarily um, a well-thought-of record, although I, I like that record a lot. Um, but, it, you know, if, if it had stayed on Rubber Soul, I think it wouldn't, you know, it would be more prominent maybe in Beatles lore now than, than it is. Yeah. That's my feeling on that. Totally yeah. agree. It, it's funny that that's a song that's much more famous uh, from the pre-CD era of Beatle fandom. There's a great, there's a great live David Lee Roth version of that. <laughs> he does it as kind of one of those David Lee Roth country metal hoedowns that only he can do. And it's just really funny that that is very, very, very much the kind of Beatles song that would make David Lee Roth think, yeah, I can do this kind of thing. <laughs> and it's funny that, you know, now, you know, for, for listeners, even, you know, like once you just grew up with the CD, so that is a song from the second half of Help, 
one of their least loved albums. And but it, it's funny that you know you turn back the clock a few years and it's the opening track on their acclaimed world-changing rubber soul. See, and I always appreciate Help and Beatles for Sale as like the dry runs for their glory years. Like, you know, there's they're still doing covers at that time a lot and you know, they have some 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 original songs that aren't quite as good like It's Only Love on Help and you know, there's a couple bum tracks like that, but you know, there's also like Ticket to Ride and there's Babies in Black and I, you know, I don't want to spoil the party like these, you know, they were doing a lot of great like John and Paul were singing singing a lot together at that time, which I really liked. Absolutely, yeah, and working so fast. And it's part of it that the songs. I mean, it's 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 funny you mentioned. I don't want to spoil the party, which is one of my favorites, and a song that. Oh yeah. It, well, it's it's funny. A, a, a song that is, is pretty close to being among the least loved Beatles songs. It's just it's not very famous, and to me, that song just crushes me. That that harmony at the end, like I still love her, part of just so intense. Um, it's really funny in uh, Paul's uh, autobiography, well, de facto autobiography of many years from now, it's, it's uh, the authorized biography with Barry Miles. But it's funny, he talks about that song and he remembers it. He's like, well, we had to write one for Ringo for the album. It's, it's, it's funny that and nobody at any point in the corrected Paul's memory. So it's, <laughs> it's, Paul remembers that as a song they gave to Ringo. Which oh. is absolutely hilarious to me. It's, it's like, <laughs> no, this is a song you and John sang together, like in an absolutely thrilling way. Oh yeah, and there's so many songs. Beatles for Sale, I think, is kind of an underrated record because I, just because there are so many songs where Paul and John sing together, like No Reply and uh, I said Babies in Black before, but uh, I really like that, and that is one of the sort of great things about early Beatles records that later Beatles records don't have, where they were singing together a lot more, and towards the end, I mean, often they weren't even in the studio at the same time together, so they didn't have that. You know, so like, so a song like Two of Us or something on Let It Be becomes that much more special because it's one of the only times that they're actually singing together anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Something I love about the later record is John becomes a really kind of great backup vocalist on the Paul songs he really hates. <laughs> so, like, the, the Paul songs that, that John hates, he's he becomes really sarcastic in his backup vocals, which is great. I, I love that moment when I'm 64, and like John just comes out with, we will scrimp and save. <laughs> and, you know, or, or in Maxwell Silver Hammer, where he's like, Maxwell must go free. And it's almost like there's this inverse proportion. Like The more John hates this Paul song, the funnier he's going to be in his, his bitchy backup vocals. And there's a strange sort of a Beatle psychic economy that way. Well, and on the flip side of that, and this is a song that you kind of disparage a little bit in your book, but I've always liked the Ballad of John and Yoko because of the Paul contributions. I think his backing vocals are really great, and I love his drumming on that song. So yes. to me, that I mean, yeah, there's it's a pretty sanctimonious song, but just the fact that Paul would do that, that he would, okay, I'm going to play with you on this song. Like the other Beatles aren't going to be on this song, but I will help you record this, you know, sort of self-indulgent, sanctimonious song. Yeah, as, as as part of the ballad of John and Paul, that song is actually quite moving. <laughs> well, and, and 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 like you said, like the way that they they sing it together, and the way that Paul sings it, Paul was really capable of doing a really like accurate John imitation in his vocals. And Come Together is, is one of my favorite examples of that. Paul's doing backup vocals, and he's like, "This is my John impersonation. It's quite good, and <laughs> it really is. And it it doesn't even sound like Paul singing. Paul is 
singing the backup vocals in this very Johnish voice that he has sometimes. And uh, the ballad of John and Yoko, it, it's great when he does that. Well, and you know, I mean, we've been talking a lot about the music here, and the music obviously is a big reason why people still love the Beatles. But how much of a role does the mythology of the Beatles play? Because I know for me, um, whenever I read Beatles books, or you know, I'll, I'll rewatch anthology for like the you know the twelfth time or something, there is something sort of reassuring about the arc of the Beatles' career. Like I know what the story is and it's a self-contained story and it works as a great story on its own but it's also a great metaphor to apply to other bands you know you can always you know say well this is like their white album or this is like their yoko moment or or whatever like there's so many little things in the beatles story that work as references for other things i mean how much of that do you think separates them from other bands I don't know. It's it, it's the absolute pinnacle of that, you know, a group of friends get together and invent something and it makes them huge and it brings them together and then it tears them apart and then they have to go on. It's kind of like, you know, the ultimate version of that story. Um, and it's, uh, it, you know, to me, it, it, it's, it's funny. I remember, like, because I'm a, of an age when, like, growing up in the 70s when I saw Star Wars in the theater when it first came out. And, uh, and, you know, just like watching Star Wars is like a little 10 year old kid. I'm like, I like the Beatles in space. They're kind of like <laughs> coming from this different planet. And, you know, and like Hansel, he's kind of like John and Luke Skywalker. He's kind of like Paul and, you know, and, and R2D2 is Ringo, obviously, and C3PO. They're kind of coming together to do this mission, you know, where they've got to, you know, talk. and it looks really funny that to me it completed very strictly as, as a, a Beatles story. Right. You know, with like different characters. Yeah, totally. I mean, for me, and, you know, I'm, I'm writing a book right now about sort of classic rock mythology and classic rock lore, because like when I was a kid in the 90s, you know, a lot of the stuff that was already over, you know, the Beatles had been broken up for 20 years, you know, the Rolling Stones were still around, but like the records that really mattered had come out 10, 20 years earlier. Let, you know, same with Led Zeppelin and the Kinks and all these bands. But the Beatles were above the rest of them in terms of just having this great story where it was almost like a folk tale or like a fairy tale that you would read. And it was a great story on its face, but there was also something to, from it that you felt like, you know, you could learn from it in a way. You could learn about life. You know, you could, you studying the John and Paul relationship and the arc of that, or like how these guys, they start out as really close friends and then they eventually split up because they find women that they want to marry. And, and, and that's sort of the experience that we all have. You know, you, you, you split up from your friends because you find your own lives and you start your own families. I mean, there was something very sort of instructive about it almost for a kid who didn't know anything about life. Like you could learn about it from the Beatles story. You know? yeah. And I really think yeah. there is an element of that for people. Like this just gets passed down almost like folk tales or something. From generation. Totally, totally. It's it's you know it's 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 like a map of like boyhood to manhood. It's and it's like here's every spot on the map. It's you know like you are you are not yet at the Beatles for sale part of your youth. You are you are still in the hard day's night part. Um, and it's it's funny to see how the Beatles how they compressed so much growing from like boyhood to manhood in eight years, and that that was you know undeniably has like remained with us as part of you know 
part of part of their lore and part of their mythology that you know that they had more of than anyone else. I love how you are. I think the only human being I've ever met in my life besides me who has actually watched the film Two of Us, <laughs> um, starring Aidan Quinn as Paul McCartney yeah. and uh, uh, Jared Harris for Mad Men as John Lennon. Uh, I love that movie so much. It absolutely kills me that, that you are, I think, literally the only person I've ever met in my life who has ever watched that movie. Well, it'd be you, me, and my friend Mark, my college roommate, because we, we watched it. <laughs> and it was one of those movies that we saw advertised, you know, because that movie came out, I think, in 2000, 99, 2000. And we were like, oh, this is going to be terrible. Like, we have to watch it. Because we were both Beatles fans. And, you know, it's always funny when people when actors put on the Beatles wigs and glasses because, you know, they're never going to look as glamorous as the real Beatles. It's always going to look kind of hokey. Yes. <laughs> I mean, like that movie Walk Hard did a great thing with that. Where Have you seen Walk Hard? Uh, with the, yes, the Jesse Riley, like, like, yeah, like where Dewey Cox meets the Beatles and I think it's like Jack Black and, uh, and uh, a bunch of other people. But yeah, anyway, yeah, two of us. Because, um, I mean... I think there's some truth to that because it's about John and Paul hanging out at the at the Dakota in like 1975 or something, and it's like one of the last times that they hang out. Yeah, and it's like sort of like there's the, I remember there's a scene in that movie like where they go to the park and they're stoned and they dance to like a reggae band or something. <laughs> yes, and they're wearing like fake mustaches, <laughs> <laughs> which really does successfully disguises them really well. Um, <laughs> And yeah, and and there's no bodyguards, and and their wives are out of town. It's just the two of them. And then like, and then they go back to the Dakota, and they get stoned, and, and they're watching TV. And what do you know? It's Saturday Night Live, and it's the night that Warren Michaels offers them three thousand dollars to come on the show. Right? Wasn't uh, didn't George Harrison go on like a couple weeks later, and like say like oh like he thought if he just showed up he could get all the money yeah. or something? <laughs> Yes, I love that. That, that was, a, was great. That was a good. Um, you write about a movie in your book too that you saw in the late seventies. It's called like Birth of the Beatles or something. It's like a TV yeah. movie. I, that made me want to go on YouTube and find that, like, because I'm fascinated by any kind of fictionalized, you know, representation of the Beatles. It's funny. It's I I, I don't even know if it's on YouTube. Um, it it the one actor in it who went on to really anything else. The guy who played George Martin. Uh, went on to be in Chariots of Fire. Um, okay. Which, uh, I, I think that is it, the only like the only point in the IMDb page that you know might catch your eye. The, the director went on to direct uh, Return of the Jedi, which is kind of weird. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but that's that's a movie that you know uh, I I saw it was on a Friday night in November 1979. And and I I do still remember I'm like I'm missing Dukes of Hazard for this but this is worth it because it's the Beatles and you know it was a fictionalized version of parts of the story that were really unknown at that point the whole Hamburg thing the whole Stu Sutcliffe story um, and also that that movie is how I found out that Brian Epstein was gay he might have been the first gay character I ever saw on TV and uh, it was really amazing and it was it's funny to think that like. I remember thinking, wow, there's so much more to this story than we know. And, it, and it's it's funny that, you know, as, as time goes on, that astonishment just doesn't wear off. There's always more to the Beatles story. Than, than, and we keep finding out stuff that is, you know, because things happen so fast for them that, you know, that they didn't, you know, 
necessarily become a big part of the story. But the whole thing of, of you know, something I didn't know until I was researching this book is, is how the Beatles had a meeting with Stanley Kubrick. John and Paul met up with, had lunch with Stanley Kubrick in 1969 to talk about uh, his plan to make a, a, a Beatles movie of Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah, I, did, I had no idea that this, like, ever, I'd never heard about this. That like no, and like Paul was going to be Frodo or something. Yes, Paul was going to be Frodo, and and uh, a, a John was going to be Gollum, of course, <laughs> and uh, and uh, Ringo was going to be Sam, and of course, you know, George had to be Gandalf the Wizard, um, <laughs> which is just so um, amazing to picture. Yeah, George in his wizard hat going, "Isn't it a pity? And isn't it a shame? How we break each other's heart." Um, but, <laughs> The idea that Beatles are having these meetings with Stanley Kubrick to be in Lord of the Rings, while right across town, elsewhere in London, the, the Stones are having meetings because they're trying to make Clockwork Orange. <laughs> and, that, of course, neither of these movies ends up happening because Stanley Kubrick says, you know, why don't I just make Clockwork Orange without any rock stars at all? <laughs> have Knock McDowell basically do a, a Mick Jagger imitation as, as Alex Bedrude. And... It's, it's just funny that elements of the story that, to me, are just kind of uh, uh, hilarious and bizarre. But, but you know, by all accounts, this this Beatles Stanley Kubrick meeting did happen, and just you know, the Beatles were so insanely busy at that point that something like that could just you know fall to the wayside. It's just a, a minor part of the story. It's you know, I just I'm just trying to think of like what Stanley Kubrick saw in the Beatles that made him think, oh yeah. Tolkien, you know, let's combine him, them and Tolkien. I mean, like, if that would have happened, like, Robert Plant would have been so jealous, you know, because he was, like, the world's biggest Lord of the Rings fan. He would have been like, why not us? I could yes. be, you know, Frodo or something. Yes. Like, what we've got to do is make a concert film where we just have these dream sequences. <laughs> where we can we can bring it all to life. But it's funny. And also just, you know, that they made the music so fast, which is, you know, Part of, I mean, you can hear that in the music. Something I love, I mean, we were talking before about I've Just Seen a Face, and something I, I do love about that song is, is uh, Paul recorded it the same day he did the vocals for Yesterday and I'm Down. And it's funny because it's three completely different styles of Paul singing, and it, it, it seems strange to think that, a, you know, that a producer would, would allow him to record those three songs the same day, that, you know, that it would that it would it would take a toll on his. I mean, you know, why would you have him sing "I'm Down" if he's going to be singing, you know, "Yesterday" into a microphone and a, a few hours later? But just that they worked so fast, uh, you know, that that's kind of like the, the the magic in the music that you can hear that these are that these are real moments that are getting seized. Well, and you know, that was a detail I didn't know either, which just you know blew my mind that that happened. He did all those songs in the same day. I mean. McCartney for me is my favorite Beatle now. Like when I was a kid, I was John Lennon all the way. Like I did a book report on John Lennon. I had like a John Lennon poster. You know, John Lennon is definitely the the one that if you're an angsty teenager, like he's the one that speaks the most to you, especially at that time, I think in the 90s, you know, because, you know, people kept comparing Kurt Cobain to John Lennon. So there was this sort yeah. of connection there. He was a very grunge John Lennon was a grunge superstar, really. But um, over time, I think just the uh, just the proficiency of Paul 
won me over. And also, this is something you get at in your book. I mean, you write a great chapter about how Paul is this guy that it's very easy for people to hate, in part because he's such a self-starter, or he's a, he's a, he's a closer, is the term you use, um, that, he, that he was the guy that got things done, especially in the later years of the Beatles, that yeah. you know, the other guys didn't want to go in the studio as much. He was always the one pushing them to, to work to the point where they just grew to despise him so much. Um, yeah. I mean, my sense from reading the book is that you are a Paul person too, although a conflicted Paul person in a way maybe because you relate too much to him. Yeah, I'm, I'm a Paul partisan. I, I have to admit that. Um, his, his personality is so different from mine that I find him really threatening. I find <laughs> his, his neediness really terrifying. And, uh, and th- th- there's so much about his personality that, that, you know, that I aspire to and I wish I had. Um, and, and, but it's funny because he, he, he's exhausting and he drives me crazy the way he must have driven the other Beatles crazy. And it's, it's, it's very funny to hear, you know, basically like the white album, they're, they're constantly making jokes about, you know, making fun of Paul. Like they're just <laughs> a theme through the white album is, you know, that, that John and George and, and even Ringo are, are constantly like, you know, like make, making bitchy jokes, not even behind Paul's back. Like, you know, right there. Like I love when George says, yes, we all know. Uh, <laughs> um, there's something about Paul and his, 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 his emotional appetites and, and his neediness and his, his just unkillable confidence that, that makes him just absolutely fascinating to me. And it's funny that, you know, that, that at the time I, I was growing up in the eighties and Paul was really, you know, trivialized and, and laughed at, he was, he was mocked, um, it was, you know, he was seen as, as the top lightweight in the Beatles or, or, or the guy who ruined the Beatles. And and it, it's funny that for me, Paul has always been, you know, the most, the most troublesome and dangerous Beatle and, and the one that at any given moment I'm, you know, the most obsessed with. But he could also, you know, he was also an amazing singer. He was probably the best musician in the band. He was probably the best pure songwriter, which in a way makes him the most frustrating because he could just, you know, fart out a great melody and then be done. It was like he didn't have to work that hard seemingly to write really good songs. Um, I mean, like I think of that song "Come and Get It" that he wrote for Badfinger, which uh, was yeah, which is what a like great song. It's a great song, but you, I mean, that was clearly a song he wrote. He just like just knocked that out in probably fifteen minutes. I mean, it, absolutely, there's, there's nothing to it, but he just has. I mean, more than any other songwriter I can think of, just the ability to just spit out catchy hooks uh, with, you know, just sort of ad nauseum. Yeah. And, I, I love that song, like, one of many solo Paul hits that I completely love, uh, With a Little Luck, <laughs> right. which is like this great, like, little, you know, soft rock, yacht rock. Did he, it, it actually, it's funny because he actually recorded it on a yacht. Right. <laughs> you know, kind of like taking the next step in terms of yacht rock. Um, like Paul had to and, be super literal when he made Yacht Rock. It's like, no, I'm going to make it on a yacht. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's so funny because it's, it's, it's a song that goes on for six minutes for absolutely no reason whatsoever. That, like, you could tell, it's like, wow, nobody in the studio had any authority whatsoever to say, you know, Paul, maybe we don't need that, like, third little synthesizer solo. Maybe, maybe this could be like an actual three and a half or four, 
four-minute song. Like, no, I want to kind of, you know, go away for a bit and then come back with more imagery about weeping willows. <laughs> you know, the willow does turn his back on in inclement weather. Um, it, it, like, the sort of smugness and complacency in that song, I can totally get why that drives people crazy. Yeah, for me, that's part of what makes it a, a, attractive and fascinating. That, you know, the, the complete self-belief that... that so this song really should be six minutes long. That is kind of mind-blowing to me. Or that thing, I mean, he went through that phase in the early 70s. You know, I mean, my favorite Paul solo period is that period right after he left the Beatles because, you know, like when he made the, the Saltello record and like a rec- record like Red Rose Speedway or Wildlife where the lyrics are just basically baby talk. Like he's not even really <laughs> trying to write. Like, like, like that song Big Barn Red, you know, which I yeah. really kind of love that song, but it's like, pretty insipid in a lot of ways, but he went through this thing in the early 70s where he was clearly lost without the Beatles. He didn't really know what to do. And, but he also wasn't interested in doing the same thing. It was almost like he said, you know, I'm just going to be a guy, you know, I'm going to be like Clark Kent in Superman two, where I take the suit off. I'm just going to be a guy and you're going to see me as a guy, you know, not as a, not as the guy in the Beatles, because, you know, he was 28 at that time. I think he was probably expected to be the biggest star coming out of the Beatles. Um, but he just made these records that were sort of borderline amateurish. And like, there's a lot to criticize. And, you know, at the time, people hated those records, you know, because they were pretty slight. But in retrospect, there's something endearing about them to me, I guess in an indie rock sort of way, where um, it's not about trying to be the big superstar band anymore. It's like, I'm going to be intimate and I'm just going to kind of put you inside my head and it's going to be sort of a stream of consciousness thing. Like I'm into this song for two minutes. Now I'm done with it. I'm going to go on to this thing and I'm just going to play a little drum riff for a little bit. And then that's done. I'm going to move on to this. I mean, it's sort of a fascinating period. I don't know if any major rock star ever made records like that, that were like, <laughs> I think you might be right about that. <laughs> Cause I, I mean, I mean, my sense from reading the book is that you are not as big of a fan of that period. Uh, well, I, I, uh, I enjoy it kind of more in theory. I don't, I don't listen to those records much. Ram is one that I really love and listen to a lot. Something I, I got into a few years ago, there was a very interesting um, a, a website, Fast Ram, um, which you may have seen. It, it was somebody who had um, purchased Ram and uh, had accidentally um, set the, the setting on his turntable to play it at 45. So for... A, the first few weeks he was listening to Ram, he was like, hey, this sounds really good, because he was playing it at 45 instead of 33. And when he realized that she actually had his stereo set wrong, he, he, he corrected it, but he was like, no, I still like it better at 45. So he actually like you know, put up sound files, of like you know, <laughs> fast Ram. And like Ram at 45 is a fantastic record. I mean, I like it at 33, but fast Ram is, is, is really something memorable. I oh, highly wow. recommend I've never heard of that. That sounds fascinating. And it's funny that you listen to something like Monk Bearing Moon Delight, (laughs) you know, like to sped up a little. And it's like, wow, this is the template for Lady Gaga's entire career. (laughs) Like every single song of hers sounds exactly like Monk Bearing Moon Delight. You know, one thing that you that you explore a lot in the book, you know, again, kind of going back to the beginning of our conversation where you wanted to 
sort of unshackle the Beatles from the 60s. And I mean, they really, the Beatles already are unshackled from the 60s, but in the terms of the conversation about the Beatles, it's always sort of putting them only in that context. And you do yeah, a job it, of kind of talking about the Beatles in different eras. And a fascinating thing in the last like 10 years or so have been how like, has been how, like, how hip hop culture has appropriated the Beatles. You know, and I mean, you actually talk about this going back to the 90s even. I think you have a quote in there from someone like someone from the Wu-Tang Clan talking about how they, they call themselves the Black Beatles. Yeah. Like, who was that? I can't remember if it was like Rayquan yeah, or something. Yeah, it was Rayquan from, Rayquan the chef from the Wu-Tang Clan. He says, you could call me Chef McCartney. <laughs> <laughs> but then there's, you know, uh, there was the Grey album, of course, uh, you know, the Jay-Z um, Beatles mashup. There was that... You talk about the the Lil Wayne cover of Help on uh, one of his mixtapes from the late 2000s. Yeah. Of course, there's the Black Beatles single that was huge this year. I mean, what's your... I, ta- I love it in Crazy in Love, where, where, uh, where you know, Jay-Z is rapping with Beyonce, and Jay-Z calls himself a star like Ringo. I'm like, <laughs> really? That's kind of a modest boast, Jay-Z. <laughs> I know, it's like what? you could have you said John or Paul. <laughs> I do not sing, though. I bling, though. I'm a star like Ringo. (laughs) I mean, is this a matter... I mean, do you see this being like a musical influence, or is it a matter of just the Beatles sort of being the signifier of, like, sort of mass culture or, like, monoculture or hugeness? I I think it's... In in many ways, just the Beatles being just the prototype of of artists doing whatever they want, you know, as, as... Going back to that great quote from from Raekwon from the Wu Tang Clan that the Beatles are timeless dudes doing timeless things, <laughs> and that you know that that's something that for these artists you know uh, that, that remains inspiring. And it's funny, to, you know, uh, with artists now like you know, in, in, you know, just to pick the most obvious examples, people like Rihanna or or Taylor Swift or or Kanye West or Beyonce who are very explicitly Beatle-minded in how they, they see their career and how they see their album statements. And, you know, in, in terms of, of how, how they see themselves as, 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 as selling the audience on, on the idea of them growing and evolving as artists and that the Beatles are such a huge part of that for all those artists is still really kind of amazing to me. Um, the, 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 Deep soul connections between Taylor Swift and Paul McCartney are just fascinating to me. Taylor Swift has got to be the most Paul McCartney-esque personality in the history of music <laughs> besides Paul McCartney. That, that is that is perfect, and it, it never occurred to me, but that you're like, totally you right. Listen to like Eleanor Rigby, and you know, it's like, wow, this is totally. Well, I mean, Eleanor Rigby. Part of it is like really charming because like Paul is like, wow, did you know that there are th- there are these people who are actually old, lonely people. Do you know about that? It's fantastic. It's like this whole subculture. Uh, it's, it's, you know, the, the exoticism of it and, and, and the way he's attracted to, you know, the idea of old people who, you know, might be like sitting home alone is, is something that like blows his mind as this exotic sort of trip. Um, and, and just the, you know, the neediness, like a, a song like You Won't See Me, which is really kind of an unreasonable and, and, and Overly demanding song emotionally. That I mean, you won't see me as such a perfect Taylor Swift song. It's kind of scary. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, but yeah, just the just the combination of like extreme proficiency and talent, and also just 
the neediness of it. Like, I just think of like, what if Paul McCartney in 1966 had an Instagram account? Like, what would he have yeah. been posting? <laughs> you know, just, just, you know, the things that he would have posted for fans to say, love me, you know, please love me, uh, you know, to, to, and to try to show himself as a normal guy, but also like this glamorous person at the same time. Uh, yeah. It would have been a fascinating and, and also thing. The Swiftian thing of like, whenever like anybody would attack Paul McCartney and he'd defend himself, no matter how right he was, like he still like he still made himself look like a dork every time he tried to do that, because like people wanted him to be above it all. Like people people didn't want him to like you know to stick up for himself. So you know John could say the meanest, bitchiest, nastiest, most unfair things about Paul, and they were always pretty funny, even when they were really mean and really unreasonable. Or George. And, George was like the biggest grouch in the world, but he was also pretty witty when he was grouchy. Oh yeah, he was so funny. I, I, I think George was the funniest one. I was, I was watching this great MTV interview with George around the time of the late 80s when he's putting out uh, a Cloud Nine. And uh, the interviewer's asking, you know, George, like, uh, Eric Clapton plays on this album. And the interviewer, maybe not really knowing or understanding the full backstory between those two guys, says, so uh, George, you and Eric have been friends for a while. How did you become friends? And George just gives the most incredibly dry, absolute deadpan face. It says, well, yeah, we shared a wife. (laughs) Just like, there's this like hilariously awkward silence. And and it's like, oh, George, he was so good at that sadistic kind of humor. Um, did you see that uh, that living in the material world that uh, that documentary that HBO did? Uh, God, I love that. Yes, I can't remember if this is Tom Petty. Like, there's a story towards the end of that, like where George Harrison goes to see Tom Petty, and like he opens up his uh, his trunk, and it's just like a trunk full of ukuleles. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. Like, yeah, I just just drove around with a trunk full of ukuleles. I mean, I guess you know if you're George Harrison. That's something you can just do, and like it'd be weird if he didn't have a trunk full of ukuleles. Yeah, it's it's kind of amazing. And, and, uh, and I saw Paul McCartney live on on his tour last summer. He you know he would get up there with a, a ukulele to play something. He goes, "This is the ukulele George gave me," and it's funny because it, it makes me think of that scene. And I'm like, was it really a designated? You know, was he like, is this the ukulele I want to give Paul? Or was he just like, you know, opening the trunk of his car and just grabbing one at random? <laughs> you know, one thing I've been thinking about a lot, because, you know, this is kind of like what my book is about, is looking at the classic rock generation and how, you know, we're gradually starting to lose these iconic people that have just been a fixture in culture for so long. I mean, obviously, we had Bowie last year and Prince and people like that. And, you know, we only have two Beatles who are still around and... You know, I don't want to delve too much into that. I don't want to jinx anything, but they seem good. But I mean, once we don't have these people run anymore, do you think that'll be the point where the Beatles start to fade from culture a bit? Or I mean, is that something you think about at all? Uh, it, honestly, to be totally honest on a personal level, it's something I, I avoid thinking about, like the plague, something I just don't <laughs> want to think about, and, or something I try not to think about. But I, I, I do not at all think that that is going to be the end of the story or anything close to the end of the story. I mean, it, it's, you know, something like Elvis is an extreme example, but, you know, Johnny Cash is another extreme example. Um, but, but for these artists, uh, the, the music 
you know, the music keeps them alive. It's not, you know, it's not them as personalities. Um, and it's so I, I, I have no problem at all thinking that, that even, you know, after that, the, 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 those, those ghastly partings that we will eventually have to say that the Beatles will be completely, um, completely un, untouched for that. Yeah, I just wonder if we're going to be seeing like Beatles hologram tours in like 20 or 30 years, you know, if that's going to be the I, thing. I pray not. <laughs> um, but, but I, you know, I, it's funny that, you know, I, I talk about this a bit in the book that, you know, I went to see uh, the show Beatlemania when I was a little kid. Yeah. And that that was something that was so infuriating to the Beatles that there would be a band like playing Beatles songs, dressing up as them, you know, playing the roles. Uh, that was so profoundly offensive to all four of them. It was the first thing in years that all four had agreed about. There's a, you know, George did a cover story for Rolling Stone in 1979, where virtually the entire interview is how mad he is at Beatlemania and also at that TV movie, The Birth of the Beatles, which he thought shouldn't have been allowed. And, and he, he found just like personally infuriating and, and, he, and, he, and he thought it was illegal. He, he was absolutely horrified at all the unauthorized uh, uh, semi-bootleg versions of the story that, you know, that were immensely popular. And, and it's funny now that, you know, Beatles cover bands, no longer a controversial thing. Nobody disputes at this point that, you know, people love Beatles cover bands and there are so many of them and there's so many, you know, specifically themed ones, you know, my, but my, my Doug Gilliard, the great Doug Gilliard, who's in, uh, Guided by voices yeah. and, and, and not a surf. He he, he has a, a really funny Beatles band that's just um just a Hamburg set, <laughs> and and they do the entire set. But the Beatles did like on a given night in Hamburg, and they just like so and you know it's a fantastic and a really you know high concept, very specific kind of Beatles cover band. But the whole idea in in the seventies it was just incredibly a, a, a contentious idea that a band had the right to play these songs. And I, I, I think as the music goes on and as the music spreads out and continues to grow and mutate, uh, you know, the, the, the music, the music will change in terms of its impact, but it'll just grow. Yeah. And I mean, I just think about myself when I came to this music, you know, the Beatles had already not been a band for 20 years. Like in a way, this has been a band that's always existed in my imagination or only existed through books and records and, and uh, documentaries. But like, I still feel like I grew up with the Beatles. Like they were such a big part of my childhood, even though that they weren't an active band, I guess, other than the anthology, you know, recording with Jeff Lynn. I mean, that was, I guess I had that version of the Beatles, uh, you know, in real time. But other than that, it was always something in my imagination, but it was still incredibly vivid regardless yeah it's, it's so funny when i was growing up in uh in the 70s and, and 80s you know and, and my sisters and i were constantly listening to the beatles and our parents thought it was so funny that you know that we still wanted to listen to the music that for them they were like the beatles are gone they don't exist anymore they broke up and they thought it was hilarious that we still wanted to listen to this and it's funny because now you know uh now my sisters have kids, and I, I play with my nieces and nephews who are like toddlers and tweens, and they are just crazy about the Beatles. And it's funny that it's my sister's turn to be completely bewildered by this. <laughs> well, Rob, I just want to tell everyone you got to read this book. If you've read a lot of Beatles books before, you got to read this one. There's a lot of things that I learned from it that 
Rob was able to dig up. It also has a lot of great Rob Sheffield insights in there. We didn't even talk about my favorite chapter, which was about Strawberry Fields Forever, which is honestly my favorite thing I've ever read about that song and one of my favorite things ever about the Beatles. So Thank you so much. Yeah, and I was going to talk about it, but I'm like, no, we got to like let people read the book. I don't want to give them all the good material. <laughs> they got to buy the book. So, Rob, congrats on the book, man. I think it turned out great, and uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much, and and uh, it, it means a lot to me that you like it, and thank you, uh, thank you for everything you do. I'm so excited for your classic rock book. Oh man, thank you so much, Rob. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Great to talk to you, Stephen. You too, dude. We'll we'll be in touch. Yeah. See you soon. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right, that was Rob. Always a great time talking to him. You know, I didn't call him a friend of the pod, but he is a friend of the pod because he is also a two-time guest. We've had a bunch of two-time guests lately. I'll have to get some rookies in here. We get, we got to get some fresh blood. We got to balance the with the the veterans with the fresh blood on this podcast. Um thank you guys so much for listening. You know, if you are a fan of this podcast, it's always helpful uh for you if you could help us spread the word. That means, you know, telling your friends about us or talking about us on social media or, you know, if if, if you have a couple minutes Leave a review on iTunes for us. That always helps bring new people in. If people see a lot of ratings for a podcast, they know that it has a good audience. They know that we're not just out here talking to nobody. <laughs> you know, um, Anything that you can do to help us spread the word would be very much appreciated. Um, but even if you don't do any of that, that's fine. I appreciate you guys just taking an hour out of your day and listening to this, to this podcast. It's always a great thing. I think that's all we have then for this week. So thanks again for listening. Uh, We will be back next week with more Celebration Rock. Until then, we'll talk at you later.